It's good to have you. I know people are going to start uh, coming in after a few minutes, and that's fine. I'm guilty of the same thing. So, uh, we are continuing our uh, brief uh, biographies uh, about people who have influenced the church. We are now broadening it, uh, not just to American uh, people that have influenced the church, but now to a more global look at people who have influenced the church. And so, and this, uh, so now we're kind of looking at anybody that, uh, anywhere. And so I'm starting us off with this uh, new, because um, last week we had uh, Chuck talk about Disney, right? Yeah, so I'm, I'm on schedule here. Okay, good. So we're going to be starting off this uh, this with Augustine, St. Augustine. Uh, some people say Augustine, and I don't think that there is a bad way of saying it. Uh, my professors that I dealt with called him Augustine, so then that's what I call him. Uh, but if you guys want to call him Augustine, I think that's fine. No harm done. Okay, well, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll find out more about this guy and what we can learn from Him in our own lives. All right, well, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we uh, are grateful to You for the men and women that You have used uh, throughout history uh, and used them in ways that have furthered Your Gospel and have encouraged uh, those of us further down the line of history that that can look back and admire what they have done And Lord, we pray for your blessing over this time that although we are talking about a a person uh, from history, that we remember uh, who they were pointing to, that we think on you as we think on them. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. All right. Now, I can understand how many of you might think to yourself, this one's going to be boring, (laughs) because... We're kind of, we've kind of, uh, we're not talking about America anymore, so that kind of detaches us a little bit, and now we're talking about someone way back in the ancient church, which detaches us even more, Uh, but I think there's some interesting things that we might find about dear Augustine. Uh, He, uh, his lifespan was from 357, or I'm sorry, from 354 to 430, A.D., all right? Um, So that kind of gives you a little bit of a a view of how early uh, he was around. This is not too, you know, it's about, uh, I would say, a little less than 300 years after Paul died. Um, And so that's not, I mean, if if you think about 300 years ago from now, um, you're thinking a little bit before America was uh, America. Um, it's not that far, if I can put it that way. And so, with, uh, the li- this, with his life, you're looking at a man uh, that we can uh, respond to or think of as more like us than maybe other ancient fathers might have been. So he was born... Uh, in North Africa, uh, 
what we would now call Algeria. Uh, his mom, uh, Monica, uh, by, the, by the Catholics, were, I think she was sainted. They call her Saint Monica. But I think she was just a, she was just a normal person. Um, but she was a devout Christian. Her, his dad was, a, was not until, I, I believe, his deathbed. But she was a devout Christian. And, um, and Augustine was a rough kid to have. Uh, maybe some of you have had this, uh, had one of these in your life. <laughs> That's right. Like Anna. <laughs> no. We all know it's you, Zeke. Okay. So, um, so Augustine was, was one of those guys that, uh, that was a little rough on his parents. Uh, and we'll talk about that in a minute. B.B. Warfield had this to say about him. You have to understand, with Augustine, as he, uh, after his conversion, he became a very uh, big name in Christianity, as you know, steering a lot of the theology that we understand today, especially in the Reformed world, uh, that we like a lot. So in the Reformation, you saw a lot of people attracted to Augustine's understanding of salvation and the Trinity, and those things became very important to the Reformers. The Catholics looked at Augustine as someone that, that we can revere, or they could revere, as uh, he was good on ecclesiology or the church. Uh, for Augustine, having denominations and having a split from the Catholic church was just um, unthinkable to him. Uh, and this was before... This was before the kind of corruption that you would see as the medieval times came along that led to the Reformation. Uh, he saw the universal church as being very connected to the visible, uh, the visible church, and the visible church needed to be one church under God. To, to see that there would be another denomination that would split from that was unheard of to him. Um, and so the Catholics loved his view of the church, but the Reformers loved his view of theology. And so B.B. Warfield said this, The Reformation was the victory of St. Augustine's doctrine of grace over St. Augustine's doctrine of the church. <laughs> Put it that way. Uh, in other words, although Augustine's view of the church required this Catholicity, this unity that could not split, which is what the Catholics liked about him. Uh, his view of uh, his theology of grace uh, triumphed over his own view of uh, the unity. Um, and we wouldn't disagree with his idea of unity. The problem is when the Catholic Church became so incredibly corrupt, uh, the Reformation became quite necessary over theology. So anyway, that's kind of a broad view of what uh, came about from Augustine. But let's look at how he started off. Um, a lot of this information I'm getting from his, uh, his famous work, The Confessions. If you haven't read that, um, it's, a, it's unique for his time, and we'll talk more about that in a little bit when we get to his writings. But he lived a pretty rough life. Uh, he, um, 
as he was educated, uh, he became attracted uh, to a really bad uh, theology called the, uh, the Manichaeans. Uh, the Manichaeans were people that believed that there was this eternal struggle between good and evil, between light and darkness. So you had these, these two gods, the god of the light and the god of the darkness, fighting each other. Okay. Now, what's interesting is that that Manichaean idea seems to us kind of silly because of our beliefs, but it is surprising how that has snuck into Christianity. As if God is in this battle for his life against Satan, and they are going at it, and God's you know, doing the best he can. Uh, you get kind of, you get that idea a little bit uh, from C.S. Lewis with, uh, with some of his writings. Um, I think the best view of C.S. Lewis would be that he didn't mean it to come across that way. I think he meant it to see that we are in the battle and God is our help in that battle. Because we are in that battle. And God is our help. Uh, he gets kind of close to God himself feeling a pressure in the battle, and I think that's part of, part of his Arminianism. But anyway, my point is, although the, the Manichaeans seem kind of crazy, there's pieces of it that kind of slip into the Christian uh, world a little bit. All right. His mother, a devout Christian, did not give up on him, though. Um, even though he slipped into this uh, false belief, uh, she was tough on him. Uh, she kicked him out of the house uh, when he was a teenager uh, because he, he, became, he got into Manichaeism. And, um, and because he did that, she said, you're out. Now, some people might think, well, that's giving up on him. And I would say, nope. That is uh, her not giving up on him. Um, I think when, when, he, uh, when he did that, uh, she saw, how can I reach this, this boy who has uh, broken my heart? Uh, one way of not giving up for her was kicking him out. And he was on his own. Uh, when he was 17, he became uh, wrapped up in a relationship with a woman. Did not marry her, but uh, continued a sexual relationship with her for almost a decade. Um, his mother said, no, uh, you need to stop that relationship and found a young lady for him to marry and to be dedicated to her. And even as she found a person for him to marry and to live a normal life, he found another girl that he, was, he started having a sexual relationship with. Um, he, uh, he even asked God to free him from his uh, lusts. And in the confessions he said, he remembered asking God to free him from his, his lusts, but just not yet. <laughs> now, you have to understand, and this is something that we need to understand about the confessions, 
The Confessions was not normal. The way he wrote, to have an autobiography of yourself was not a normal thing to do. And especially to confess. Um, this was thought of as untoward, uh, not something that you're supposed to be doing, uh, confessing the bad things you have done in your life, let alone uh, presenting an autobiography. It just wasn't done. Uh, even Plato uh, did not present his own life. He presented Socrates' life. Uh, you understand that uh, everything we know about Socrates did not come from Socrates. Everything we know about Socrates came from Plato, who wrote about Socrates. I mean, it really wasn't about Socrates. It was about Plato's beliefs through the character Socrates. Uh, now, we believe that a lot of at least the first writings that Plato wrote was probably things that Socrates actually believed, but as it went along, it really was what Plato believed. We don't know what Socrates believed after that. Um, but this is how you did it. You would take a character or a person, and you'd write about them, someone that you maybe got your beliefs from, and that's how you would talk about you. You would talk about you through talking about someone else. You would never talk about you. Plato would have never written about Plato. Make sense? Uh, but here you have Augustine writing about himself, saying, this is how I lived my life. Now today, we're very used to that, right? We have autobiographies left and right. We have people uh, confessing things about their lives all the time. And we look at the confessions as normal. But you have to understand that was not the way things were back when Augustine was writing these things. And Augustine writes about... A, an incident, this is a famous part of his book, where he and a friend uh, saw in a neighbor's yard um, a beautiful pear tree, uh, produced a lot of beautiful pears, and they decided they were going to go in there and steal a bunch of pears. They go in there and they strip, the, they strip the tree bare and take all the pears and then threw them to a bunch of pigs. And he was remembering that he and his friend did this. And he was, thinking, he, was, he was thinking back on it, and he thought, well, we weren't hungry for the pears. It's not like our families were in want and we, we needed them to survive. We just thought it would be funny to take the pears. And they didn't even use them. It's not like they even turned them around and made money out of them. They just threw them to the pigs. There was no reason for them to do it, except, and this is where Augustine kind of comes down on what sin is like, he said, we just enjoyed the event of stealing. We enjoyed the sin. That the reason we did it was because we loved that feeling of being able to sin. And, um, and this is where he started to develop uh, his understanding of Scripture and connecting it to his life where Scripture seemed to be saying the same thing. Scripture was saying that People don't sin because uh, there is this, um, they're put in a circumstance that creates their desire to sin. But there's something about us right from the start that, that we are people that love to rebel against our God. And so um, he talks about how. Uh, when, he was, um, when he was 17, he had uh, 
Later on, he, be, he became involved with this woman. Uh, by the time he was 19, they had a kid. Um, I, I dreaded trying to pronounce his name. Uh, I had it last night really well down. I, I had it, and I was like, okay, I can do this. Uh, That's true. Adoterous? Ah, no, that was bad. Okay, anyway, he had a kid. And he named it uh, things that people named kids back then. And, uh... (laughs) Thank you. Um, I just cannot get it. Okay, it doesn't matter. So anyway, he had the kid. Um, His, uh, it was a a boy. Um, And he ended up uh, this boy did not live long, actually, uh, only into his teenage years. Um, and uh, actually, when he became con- uh, when Augustine became converted, uh, he insisted on the baptism of he and his son together on the same day. And so that's at least something that a uh, memory he had before his son uh, passed. Um, so his conversion. Um, I wanted to read for you uh, where he talks about this in his confessions. Um, he, was, he was a man who understood conversion to be something that must uh, involve repentance. And that was a big part of the Reformation. Being able to see conversion not as necessarily water being poured on, on you, but a, a moment in which uh, repentance is clearly understood. Uh, and so, and we, and, and the Reformation understood this, that how do you know when your child makes the faith their own, right? I mean, as Presbyterians, we baptize our babies because we're looking for the promise, and and as we're looking for that promise, what are we looking for in our children? We're looking for those moments where we're seeing real repentance in their heart, where they are not feeling bad because they got caught, but they come to us and say, this has been bothering me. And we start to see that repentance in their heart, and those are the evidences we see in our children of real faith. And so a lot of that is, was backed up, and this, you'll see this in uh, Calvin's writings a lot, referring back to Augustine, uh, particularly in, in repentance. And so this is how Augustine looks back on the moment he had where he was starting to uh, experience repentance. Uh, But when a profound uh, reflection had from the secret depths of my soul drawn together and heaped up all my misery before the sight of of my heart, there arose a mighty storm accompanied by a mighty shower of tears. And so all the weight of his sin was starting to develop in him and he saw this feeling like this storm welling up in him and it came out uh, in his weeping over his, over his sin. I flung myself down, how I know not, under a certain fig tree, giving free course to my tears 
and the streams of my eyes gushed out on acceptable, an acceptable sacrifice unto these, talking to God. And not indeed in, the, in these words, yet to this effect spake I much unto thee. So he says, this is not what I really said, but this was the effect of what I was trying to say. And he quotes scripture, but, that, but thou, O Lord, how long? How long, Lord, wilt thou be angry forever? O remember not against us former iniquities. For I felt that I was enthralled by them, speaking of his sin. I set up these sorrowful cries, how long, how long, tomorrow and tomorrow, why not now? Why is, this, uh, why is there not this hour and an end to my uncleanness? So he felt this trap of being stuck with his sin, that he could not free himself from that sin. And this is important to Augustine. You have to remember, Augustine is in the context of the Catholic Church in which there are um, sacraments and ways to release yourself from your own will, to release yourself from sin. And he's feeling this, this feeling of being trapped by a sin where he can't free himself. And there's nothing he can do in his own will and his own desires to get out of this sin. I was saying these things and weeping in the most bitter contrition of my heart when, lo, I heard uh, the voice as of a boy or girl, I know not which, coming from a neighboring house, chanting and off-repeating, take up and read, take up and read, or in the, Greek, or in the uh, Latin, tole lege. And there's a, I think, a, isn't there a... Um, from heritage books, uh, Reformation heritage books, uh, they have this magazine they send out called Tole Lege, Take Up and Read. It's where they sell their books. They want you to take up and read those books. <laughs> uh, so anyway, that's where that came from if you subscribe to them. Um, so he's hearing this voice, Take Up and Read, Take Up and Read. Immediately, my countenance was changed, and I began most earnestly to consider whether it was usual for children in any kind of game to sing such words. So he's recognizing this isn't normal. Uh, it's not normal for a kid to say, take up and read, take up and read, because it sounded odd to us as Americans in 2021 to say, why would a kid be saying that? And he, back in you know, first century, is thinking the same thoughts. Okay. Nor could I remember ever to have uh, heard the like. So, restraining the torment of my tears, I rose up, interpreting it no other way than as a command to me from heaven to open the book, speaking of Scripture, and to read the first chapter I should light upon. Okay, now, we don't usually encourage people to say, okay, just open it and start reading. Uh, you know, you usually want to be more intentional about that, but he didn't. He just opened it and started reading. So, he grasped, uh, he grasped a copy of Scripture, opened and in silence read the paragraph on which my eyes fell. And he, he accidentally opened up to, to Romans. So that's dangerous. Uh, if you are in sin, you don't want to open up to Romans. Uh, but he opened up to Romans 13. 
And then he read this, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in uh, clamoring and wantingness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. No further would I read, nor did I need. For instantly, as the sentence ended, by a light, as it were, of security infused into my heart, all the gloom of doubt vanished away. And so he realized uh, that it was God's work on him. And this, was, this became a big theme uh, for Augustine, that, his, that we are not able to save ourselves. Okay? And this is where the theology becomes so important about someone like Augustine to the Reformers, that the Catholic Church in its, in its infancy, uh, through Augustine, understood that salvation is not through us. It's not through our will, that we don't will God into our hearts. That rather, God must do the work and the work is done through reading of the Word, through the power of the Holy Spirit, the heart who has no recourse, even when it realizes its sin, has no recourse for salvation except through God's grace. So grace becomes this very strong theme in Augustine. And not the kind of grace that people talk about today where they're saying, oh, God is gracious, you don't have to uh, confess your sin, just concentrate on the grace of God. What Augustine is getting to is the grace is that he is the one who saves. That we sit there powerless to save ourselves. We're weeping under a tree, weeping over our sin, and there's no hope even in the weeping. But God has to change the heart, and he does so in his grace. Does that make sense? Okay, so after he is converted, he becomes kind of um, the guy everyone's interested in because he had this huge conversion from being one of those really smart guys that could be a huge threat to the church to being converted into the church, and now he's one of those few guys, right? Uh, isn't it First Corinthians... Uh, chapter 1 that talks about there's very few that are called. If I can put it into our terminology, there's very few who are called into God's family who are smart. <laughs> if I can put it that way. Uh, it's very clear that that's what is said in 1 Corinthians. There's not too many that are smart, not too many noble, not too many wealthy. Uh, there's not too many. There's some, but not many. And uh, so Augustine gets to be one of the not many. He was one of those really brilliant guys that got called into God's family uh, by the Holy Spirit. And so he, be, uh, he, uh, he actually becomes a bishop uh, in his hometown of Hippo. That's what it's called. So that's all we got. Uh, so he becomes Augustine of Hippo. Bishop of Hippo. And... Uh, and he starts fighting a lot of fights. Uh, three of the major fights that he, that he fights against is number one, a guy named Pelagius, 
where we get Pelagianism. Okay, good. Um, and, uh, and I don't know if you remember this, Pelagius is the guy that believed that we are not affected by Adam's sin. Okay, we have no effect of that. That returns again, remember with Finney? Uh, falls into this camp that reignites this Pelagianism where we're, we're not affected by Adam's sin, we don't have to worry about Adam's sin. Uh, we sin because uh, we fall into sin based on circumstances. Uh, this idea of sin being something that is a part of our nature. Remember Finney rejected that. New Haven theology rejected that. Sadly, Jonathan Edwards' own son, Jonathan Edwards Jr., uh, fell into uh, to New Haven theology as well. He's one of the architects of it. Which was just a revisiting of this guy, Pelagius. And, uh, and so Augustine uh, fought, fought quite, um, quite hard against, against that idea. He fought hard against this another idea called Donatism. Now, Donatism, I want to go in a little bit of that. Donatism is the idea that Christian clergy, pastors, priests, whatever, uh, must be faultless in their ministry to be effective and their prayers and sacraments to be valid. So they, there was this faultless idea that they had to have no... Uh, they had never have strayed from the beliefs... Uh, the orthodox beliefs, in order for their baptisms to count, for their prayers to have any effectual work, or anything like that. Now this came about because there was the emperor Diocl uh, uh, I'm having a terrible time pronouncing names today. Was it Diocletian? Am I saying that right? It just sounds weird when it comes out of my mouth. So he demanded, Diocletian demanded that, uh, it's one of those, per, it was called the Great Persecution, and, they, and he demanded that, uh, that the priests and, and uh, clergy give up Scripture, give up their actual copies of Scripture, and hand them over to the government to be burned. Um, to, so they had to surre surrender the Scriptures, they had to surrender uh, any work in the sacraments, uh, they had to uh, give up their church buildings to be burned, and they had to do this freely and willingly, or they would be burned. So there was a lot of martyrs at that time, but there was a lot of people that um, that were what you would think of as sellouts that did give over their copy of the scriptures to be burned. And this was a big deal because this wasn't the days where everyone just grabbed their Bible and walked into church. There was a copy of the scriptures that was held by the clergy so they could preach it to the, to the people who did not have copies of it or able to even read, if they, even if they did have a copy of it. So they were dependent on the clergy. And then the, you, have this, you have Diocletian saying, hand over your copy, and they, you, know, you had some guys say no, and they were burnt at the stake, but then you had guys that said, yes, here you go. You want our building? Have our building. And they gave in. This was considered heresy, because it is. Right? When, you're, uh, when, when the emperor says something 
that goes against Scripture itself and then you give into it, uh, it's a heretical act. Well, then Diocletian disappears. Then you have, uh, you have uh, what's his name, take over. Um, Constantine, thank you. <laughs> Who said it? 20 points, thank you. You have Constantine taking over and then saying, okay, well, let's give everyone their property back and let's get this Christian thing back on track. And so then these guys that sold out are going back into churches that have been given back to them. And they're like, what do we do with these guys? I mean, they seem to be sorry for what they did to survive, but they still did it. So it's not like the Donatists had no reason to be upset. The Donatists said, we don't want these guys back. And you know, even though they've repented of what they did, uh, any, any prayer they give, any sacrament they give, any of that has no, effect, uh, has no effect. If you were baptized under this guy, it didn't count. Even before the whole emperor thing, if you were baptized under this guy that gave up the scriptures and gave up the building, then that baptism didn't, didn't count. So then they started doing re-baptisms. So if you, if you were under this guy or that guy, these particular guys, you come to the Donatists and they'll re-baptize you into the real church. This idea of rebaptism became this, this constant uh, theme. Now, uh, you might be thinking of some of our brothers in other denominations that rebaptize because uh, you may not have been dunked, and that concerns them, so they rebaptize because of mode. That's a different. That's a different issue. Uh, their belief that mode. Uh, becomes so important that you need to be rebaptized is a different sermon. But these guys were rebaptizing because they felt that the person that baptized them in the first place, it doesn't count because of who they were. Now that gets really dangerous because now you're getting into, okay, well, as you go along and these clergy die off, what else could a clergy do uh, that may make their baptisms not count? Well, now it becomes anything that they believe that the Donatists don't believe, right? And so if a clergy disagreed with the Donatists, well, now those baptisms don't count. Does that make sense? It quickly turns into that. And Augustine was fighting for the unity of the church. Uh, the Donatists were trying to break away and have their own little reformation over something that... Uh, could be fixed in a different way. And they were trying to have a pre-reformation that quickly turned into an occult. So, he was fighting the Donatists, he's fighting the Pelagians, he even fought the Arians who were before Augustine's time but were still hanging around. The Arians believed that Jesus Christ was not God, but rather created by God and given a godlike status. And so he started fighting them as well, who were still hanging around. So three major books that he wrote. He wrote so much that really it's, it's almost... Uh, if anyone says they have read everything Augustine has written, they're probably lying. Uh, or uh, they really have a lot of time on their hands like a few years. Uh, there, he wrote so much, uh, to, to get through it all would be difficult. So if you, 
if you are um, if you're interested in Augustine and you want to know what he what he's about, there are three major works that I would suggest that kind of define who Augustine is. Number one, of course, is the Confessions. Um, and we talked about that already. The Confessions, uh, I think, is about 13 books long, or 13 chapters, if you want to call it that. Uh, the first 10 really just go into his whole life, and then the last three really go into theology that comes out of what he was uh, living in his life, and he kind of plays those out for you. The other one was the City of God. Um, this is where he really starts getting into, um, into worldviews, where he poses the, a biblical worldview against the worldview of the pagans and starts developing how the pagan views the world and how the Christian views the world and how these are incompatible ways um, of, of life and you have to choose and there is uh, and a lot of this came from the fall uh, of the city of Rome in 410 and the pagans were saying that the fall came because the Christians were no longer worshiping the gods the pagan gods because they stopped worshiping the pagan gods the pagan gods were angry at Rome and so that's why the city of Rome fell and so this was almost a kind of apologetic. Why is it that that is false? And so he was developing, and this was a new way of thinking. You have to understand, you have this group of people that understood the world as we have these gods, and when you get them angry, they punish us. This is the only worldview. And then you have these weird Christians that have this new occult that they're trying to develop their churches, and it's starting to spread, and it's getting a little dangerous. It's getting so dangerous we lost our city because the gods are upset. It does not occur to them that there is a worldview that they have. Does that make sense? I mean, we think of this all the time. We live in a world that is so perspective-driven, right? In America, everything is perspective. And from your perspective, I see why you think that. But from my perspective, I think of it this way. And so, therefore, how are we all going to get along with our different perspectives, never saying whether which one is right or wrong? They did not think this way back then. Back then there was one way of thinking, and when someone went off into a tangent somewhere, they were thought of as crazy. This carried over into the medieval times, even into the Reformation, where the typical worldview was the Christian worldview. And if you were going to say, and this is why the whole baptism thing was so strange, Part of baptizing your babies back, in, back during the Reformation time was also a part of them being a citizen of where they lived. For you to say, no, we're not going to baptize our babies, we're going to wait until our children give a testimony, we're going to baptize them later on, was, was an act of terror, you understand. These were the, they were looked upon, people that would say, I'm not going to baptize my baby, was, they, they were looked upon like crazy crazy people you understand and so this idea of worldview looking at okay these people have this view all these assumptions and beliefs and values that's causing them to see the world in one way right was not part of their vocabulary so city of god was a was one of those foundational pieces of literature that helps us see that augustine was viewing the world and saying, okay, well, the pagans view the world this way because of how they believe, 
And our view of the world is this way because we have our foundation in Scripture, and they're incompatible. Okay? And he was kind of making an apologetic of why it is that the Christians believe what we believe. And it's, um, some of it's kind of thick, it's kind of hard to get through. It took him 15 years to write it. Um, and it was designed to defeat the pagan philosophy of the world. Um, if you can put it this way, the pagan worldview. As he was trying to demonstrate our worldview as foundational and true. Um, part of this was developing three particular ideas I think is kind of important. Um, he was trying to demonstrate that the biblical worldview is that the earth was created from nothing. Okay? This ex nihilo idea of, of creating the earth that scripture talks about. He's saying this is the way it was. There was nothing and then God created. Now this is very distinct from the pagan view that the whole universe is eternal. Right? This is what Plato was teaching everybody and this is what everyone kind of assumed about the world. The world is eternal, um, and so it's just always been here, and now we're experiencing it. Even our souls are eternal. We, are, we die, and our soul goes right back into the cycle, and then we are born again into another life, and then we die, and then our soul goes right back in the cycle, and we have this eternal soul, right? And when Plato's talking about an eternal soul, he's not talking about a soul that will never die. He's talking about a soul that never had a beginning, Okay? just always was, and this is how our soul is. And here Augustine is saying, no, Scripture tells us that our soul began. Okay? And so he's going through all these comparisons, and he's really, he's really putting a strong wall between the philosophy of the world, the worldview of the world, and the worldview of Scripture, which again isn't something that was done back then. And so the third work that I would look at if I were you, if you're interested in Augustine, is called De Trinitate, which is just the Trinity. Um, there's a lot, of, um, a lot of theologians wrote something that they called De Trinitate in those days, uh, all the way through the medieval times. Uh, but when you look up De Trinitate, you find Augustine, because he's like the master of the view of the Trinity as we understand it today. Some people think he emphasized the oneness of God too much and not the threeness enough. I think that comes because of how Augustine, what the context Augustine was in at the time, in which uh, plurality of gods was very popular and he was trying to emphasize the oneness of God in the context of a world where people only understood plur plurality of gods. And so that's important to understand as you read through it. I think he spent sufficient amount of time on the threeness, but some people don't think so. Um, but anyway, um, in that uh, book, the Trinity, you would think the main idea is to get to the being of God, but his real focus was trying to get to the idea of our salvation. That in understanding the Trinity, you understand that we have no responsibility in our own salvation. God is the one that changes the heart. And he does this through his triune work. And so we are able to even 
reflect on the fact that we're, un, we're unbelieving, but only through God's work are we able to believe. That was the thrust of that book, and that's why he wanted to demonstrate that in, in uh, God's triune being. So that was, he died, um, oh boy, he died uh, at 75, which was pretty old back then. Uh, he died with pe- uh, having people write the Psalms on parchment so he can read it over and over so that he would be constantly repenting before the Lord because he believed very strongly that he wanted to face the Lord with a clean heart. Repentance was a huge part of his life, not just at his uh, moment of salvation, but at his, as a pattern in his life. And so there's a lot we can learn from him. Uh, you have this man that had a lot of gifts, but was still very humble because he didn't forget where he came from and he didn't forget that it was not him who brought about his salvation, but it was God. And it's because of him that we had a reformation, if you, if, uh, in my opinion. It would have been difficult for both Luther and Calvin to promote a reformation without leaning on church fathers. It would have looked a lot like an occult was trying to be separating itself from the church. But they linked the Reformation back to Augustine and said, this is what our church fathers says about our theology, and therefore we're not transforming anything, we are reforming. We are going back to what we should have believed back with Augustine. And that was their argument. When you read through Calvin, you see Augustine referred to over and over again because the argument is, we are not trying to develop something new. We're trying to go back to what we used to be. Trying to reform back to our old beliefs, and Augustine was part of that. And uh, without God using him that way, the Reformation might not have been what it, what it ended up being. So, these are things that we can look back on and be thankful about for God's work in, our, in the orthodoxy of our belief that God does not, by magic, keep us believing uh, what we are supposed to believe, but rather uh, through His work, through history, allows us, uh, keeps His word uh, pure uh, step by step. I mean, we would probably prefer magic where God snaps his fingers and everyone believes the right thing, but God prefers his work through providence, which is hard for us to grasp, but it's also quite glorious. All right, well, let's have a word of prayer, and we'll get going with the service. Dear Heavenly Father, we uh, are grateful to you for your work of providence through history that we might be able to maintain a strong uh, reliance on your word through the power of the Holy Spirit, because of the love of the Father and the work of the Son. Lord, we pray for your blessing over uh, our service today. Lord, prepare our hearts that we might come before your word with a humble heart, that we might be able to listen to what your servant has to say to us today. Lord, uh, give Andrew the words to speak to us today that we might 
uh, know what you will have us learn today and, and how we might have to change our hearts because of what we learn. Lord, we ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.